Hello and welcome to Off The Record. It's been a very busy past week for us. The response to the last episode was really great. Thank you all for listening. There's a couple quick things of follow-up. A large portion of what we talked about last week was Urban Outfitters and how they are the largest seller of vinyl in uh, the world. Most of the conversation was not actually on them being the largest seller, just about the potential side effects of Urban Outfitters being a large a large seller in general and what Jesse and I think about that. Regardless, right before we posted the episode, it actually was um, reported by Billboard that Amazon is the, higher, the highest seller of vinyl by uh, 5%, but uh, Urban Outfitters still sells a very, very large amount of vinyl compared to any other retailer. I think what was interesting about the conversation anyway was that Urban Outfitters is selling more than like all these mom and pop stores and that there's no mom and pop store that or like physical brick and mortar retail that's selling this much since they're mostly doing it there and not online. Amazon's the biggest seller of everything. Which, now. Have you ever bought a record on Amazon? I've never bought vinyl on Amazon. I bought a lot of vinyl on eBay. Yeah, I've only ever bought one record on Amazon and um, it was, what was it? It was Death Cat for Cuties Plans. I just couldn't find it anywhere else. And it, it really always shocks me that people buy vinyl on Amazon. And I, I clearly, like 13% of all vinyl sales are on Amazon. So it's shocking to me. Did they, I mean, can they measure eBay? Because I feel like eBay's got to be the real biggest seller. Oh, but. yeah, but that's not an official retail. Sure, sure. Not official, but that's definitely where the most vinyl sales happen. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I, bought, I have bought a lot of vinyl on eBay over the years too. But in terms of retail, like, I just don't know anyone that buys on Amazon. I wonder if that's sort of like Urban Outfitters, more of a mainstream vinyl buying solution for people. Because, you know, even Bad Timing Now is going to have our vinyl up for sale on Amazon through distribution so and out. so do every other label. Oh, I'm sorry. Huh? I'm sorry. I don't Please. know what happens. I got to get paid, man. <laughs> <laughs> Got a Ford podcast microphone. So yeah, it's just it's just interesting to me. What I do like about um, uh, about Amazon's vinyl thing is that digital rip thing they have going on. Yeah, that's um, great. Which is kind of like a digital download. I think that's really good. I just it's just interesting to me because it's not something I ever consider doing. Nevertheless, that's a little bit follow up. Also, real quick, uh, we talked about maybe a month or so ago that the music industry is considering a global release date. For record releases, I said I thought this would be great, and Jesse said, "You know what? I think this would be great too, but I don't ever see this happening." And you know what? Jesse might be right. Who to thunk uh, it? So, in a link on the show notes at offtherecord.fm/episodes, um, there's an article up on Billboard that, while it's not out of the question for a global release date, real retailers are pushing back a little just because uh, it actually would take a lot of different marketing and money and in general bullshit to change the release date from, let's say, a Tuesday to a Friday. I hope this doesn't kill this idea because I, I think it's just the smartest thing to do in this situation, but we don't know. We'll see how it goes. Hmm. That's something I didn't want you to be right on. Well, you know, that's just the force of the universe that is my rightness and intellect. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so our first topic is about what a horrible, hypocritical person are you are. Uh, okay, so this episode might be a little feisty. Okay, a little well, so feisty. <laughs> I guess what happened is Amazon, your vinyl selling friend, uh, leaked the information that you announced today that Knucklepuck has a new EP coming out. 
That's correct, right? Yeah, so let me let me do a little more backstory, I guess. For the last six months, we've been working on a new Knuckle Puck EP. Uh, Jesse did pre-production on it. Um, bad timing, as I've talked about on maybe an episode or two. We just recently uh, got distribution through ADA, one of the biggest uh, distributors of music in the country, and that's super great for us. How How distribution works is kind of this really somewhat archaic and somewhat frustrating but ultimately beneficial process where you have to enter a release date into ADA's backlog system two months early for a release. And if you have a release coming out on October 28th, which is when Knuckle Puck's coming out, it's going to start making its way to uh, retailers like Amazon or Hot Topic or local record stores well before the October 28th release date because they want people to order that record from them as well. Um, most albums are, most albums or releases in general are announced more than 22 days before the release date. Um, and if that's the case, most of them don't get leaked out early by websites such as Absolute Punk or Property of Zach. But because we announced this knuckle puck release date today, uh, which is Monday the 6th, only 22 days before, uh, the official release date, it was on... It was all over the internet on retail sites, and there was nothing that we could really do about that. And that is just how distribution works. That's a trade-off. You you control less, but ultimately you hopefully get a lot more. Jesse, you want to you want to act the part of the hater here? So, in the salutepunk.net common threads, um, where all intellectuals gather to discuss their very wise, hot, smart takes, uh, somebody said. The conflict of interest finally comes to fruit. And boy, is this person late to the game if they think your conflict of interest comes to fruit just now. I mean, God, it's been years. Yeah, it's been years. Um, (laughs) And I digress. Uh, As someone that works press in the biz, we've seen Zach quote-unquote leak information countless times and make fun of others' companies' press rollouts when snafus happen. Now it happens to him, and he complains online about the leak. Not only that, that, but the information is nowhere to be found on his website. Is Property of Zach really censoring news from its rears because of his label? Lots in the industry with smiles today. I bet you there is lots. I bet you him and his uh, two other virgin nerd friends were sitting around with big smiles. So anyway, somebody hates you. There's a, there's a few great tidbits of information in this post. One, uh, the commenter signed up, created a brand new Absolute Punk account to post this, and this was his first comment. <laughs> Two, um, this is about one of five people in the world, and I know all five of them. And whoever you are, like, look, bummer for you. But you know, it kind of it kind of brought on a lot of more thoughts in my mind. And that's why we're um, talking about today is I think it's I think it's really important that when you and I trying to be these people who talk about music is that we don't avoid the criticism of us and uh, there's bound to be some. Yeah, and and so I, I went through and I answered kind of his his uh, lovely message point 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 by point in that absolute punk thread, but. You know, to to round up quickly what I said before we get into more of a conversation about it, like uh, I do, I think what he said, what he said that most interested me was uh, I make fun of companies all the time when snafus happen in their rollouts, and you know what? Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, I didn't, I didn't hide that bad timing messed up here because we did. Um, most of the time, the companies I make fun of when 
uh, issues like that happen is someone like Hopeless Records because they've been a company for 21 years and they've been with their distributor for probably a decade and they should well know how this stuff works out. Um, someone like Bad Timing, who's been distributed by ADA for all of 60 or less days, are still getting the hang of it. Once again, we messed up, um, and I'm not hiding that. But at the same time, it's it's a little apples to oranges. And the the part that didn't offend me but made me actually laugh the most was is is POZ censoring news from its readers because of his label. Um, yes. <laughs> if you consider me not posting about uh, an EP for three days censoring, um, yes. Uh, let me tell you, first and foremost, listener or uh, absolute punk commenter, conflict of interest. Yes. Uh, I, u- I use my businesses as a, as a way to help my other businesses and to help myself and to help those I work with and to overall, in this sense, help the band that I manage music get out there in a more cohesive and smart way. What, what I liked about this post the most was that so much of what's going to be changing soon with Property Use Act, and, and that's something we'll be talking about soon, is that this is going to be much less of an issue to the quote-unquote, haters' mind. Um, what, what Properties Act is now is not really efficient for what I am now. Um, I do all these other things that are not the website. And it's hard for me to um, talk about that without needing to put in a disclaimer in a post. And that's not like, that's not a, that's not a nuisance. It's just kind of like, I wish I didn't have to disclaim this um, because it is my name in the website. So what, what would be a lot nicer to me and potentially readers is if there was a very easy way for everyone to find out, hey, this guy, Zach, manages Knuckle Puck, he works with Real Friends, he owns this label, he manages this other label, blah, blah, blah. And so it is clear, not necessarily my motives. I don't, like, hopefully uh, me waiting three days so Knuckle Puck can have a more cohesive rollout is not uh, an evil motive. Like, like to me, if you think that well, well the conflict kind of, of interest would be if you um, did post that as a news thing. That would be the conflict for Knucklepuck is that they would be mad. And so he's inferring that the conflict is that you're not serving your readers by divulging a bad rollout on your part. Fully, so, which, which makes know, it even <laughs> a stupider comment than it already was. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, it is one thing that is fair is that we absolutely do post about leaks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something we we uh, consistently do less of because I, over the course of five years, have gotten a better understanding of how the music industry works. Like I, I posted this in the Absolute Punk thread, but if Run for Cover were announcing a release on Monday, and I knew that, but it leaked out on Friday in Absolute Punk, I really may not post it because. What good does that do? It's a Friday. Fridays suck for traffic. I'm not going to do the band any good. I'm not going to do the label any good. And ultimately, who who really cares unless it's like a new Tiger's Jaw album that's been waited on for 10 years. But at that point, again, I may just wait. Um, I used to leak tours all the time, too. And I, I don't do that anymore because I realize that booking agents have feelings <laughs> and they're scary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Merrick, please don't email me. I, I don't know. I, I think it, everything is a case-by-case basis. Um, I have less sympathy in general for when Yellow Card promised their fans that they're going to release their album in September 
an online uh, fan account from Indonesia leaks the artwork and track listing that Absolute Punk and Property Zach posted a day later, and Property Zach gets all the blame for that. Um, and then we get publicly trashed by a band for not knowing how to use the internet. Like something like that to me is like you you hurt yourself here. Something like this knuckle puck situation is. We didn't acknowledge it because we had to wait all of three days and now we're doing a proper rollout and it makes sense. There's To me, there's a large difference between a snafu of you promised your fan a wrong release month, the album leaked, you didn't acknowledge it for a month, and then the rest of the rollout was bad versus, hey, here's our album information online three days early. Like, is that, to me, that seems a little different, especially when one band has a platinum record and the other band has. A few uh, thousand fans, let's say. Three tours under their belts? So here, like. here, here's the thing, because I'd like to even get technical of why I LOL'd at this doofus. So he infers, though, that your conflict of interest is that property of Zach serves to be that you're like this, you're the New York Times, you're like this journalistic entity that owes its readers that you cover everything that absolute punk or alternative press are your buddies at Pup Fresh or whatever cover, and that yeah, and like this is the funny thing is, is I think it's funny because it's like I don't think you've ever claimed to be a journalistic outfit. You're somebody who curates the information you think your readers should read, and you choose when to do that and how to do that at what time to do yeah, it. Yeah, I I uh, I've gone out of my way. Yeah, I've gone out of my way to say that I'm not a journalist uh, because I don't have journalistic training. Uh, like my friend, our mutual friend Thomas has a journalism degree. I have never taken a journalism class in my life. That doesn't mean I can't tell the difference between what's ethically right and what's ethically wrong. But at the same time, while I hopefully won't do a lot of stuff that's ethically wrong, I don't have any journalistic code stopping me from it. And that's not like an excuse to be morally or journalistically wrong or whatever. But at the same time, uh, I think I often get held up to standards that I don't necessarily exist for me um, internally, especially when I do have these other businesses. Like it's clear that my motives are not what this ideal version of this person's is. You know, like I don't know. It's just, it's just so hard for me to like fathom. It's not like I make a secret of what I do, right? It's not. It's not like on Twitter, all my posts are about uh, Blink One Eighty Two and Property Zach anymore. They're about Blink One Eighty Two, Property Zach, and three other things. You know, it's it's not like I'm hiding. So, so I thought it would be more interesting is to talk about real conflicts of interest and not what this doofus thinks it is, because obviously you burned him as a publicist one time and he feels scorned by it. But um, yeah, so I think like what's interesting is it's like so I think of like a conflict of interest that I used to find really gross, which was um, Richard and Stephanie Reynas of drive through records fame. And they never really got shit from this because I think some other press outlets always shielded them from this. They would often try to manage the bands that were on their label and that way. And they would tell bands when they were signed that they don't want to deal with a manager. And I think some of this was because they were such incompetent, emotional, childish people 
that they didn't want to have to deal with other adults because those other adults would see how awful they are to deal with. I think it was very interesting that they would manage and do this. And the manager and the label are often meant to be checks and balances upon one another. The manager's saying, hey, you know, guys, the label's not doing this. We should say something about this. Royalty statement's not on time. They're not giving the tour support they said they were going to do. Da, 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 da. And the label's supposed to be like, hey, you know, your manager's been drunk for about four days. And he's not doing all the things we told him we needed him to do for you guys to get this album done, etc., etc." There's supposed to be a check and a balance relationship there. So, but funny enough, you run two labels and manage a whole lot of bands, and I noticed you're putting out a record from one of your bands uh, this week. Um, talk about how that's not a conflict of interest, because I think that's much more interesting. And um, I should also say this. I'm saying this to you also because I think, one, we should keep these things real and show the thought you have to put into this. And, like, two... I went through this with Man Overboard in Transit when I was their manager and producer, and it was time to look for other producers at one point. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting balance. Um, Thomas and I, after, I don't know, maybe Thomas and I sometime this year uh, made an agreement or, you know, an understanding with each other that I will not manage any other bands on the label. Um, and if I do, that I will not take a cut of their music royalties from Bad Timing uh, if I do manage it in some way. Knuckle Puck, the Knuckle Puck situation is a little interesting. Um, I started managing the band in August of last year. I asked them if they had any plans to put anything on their catalog on vinyl. Uh, and they said, yes, we've been talking with this... Um, even we've been considering something with this label and I, and it's not a label that I had like harsh feelings towards. I just didn't necessarily feel comfortable giving my band, my, this new band I'm managing who I thought would be very well off this, this catalog of vinyl when I thought someone could do it better. And they asked who, and I, and I gave a few options. Um, bad timing was definitely the first. And I said, look, why I think we should do this with my label is because we can control every aspect of it. And it's much less about the money than I'd rather not have. I'd rather just, I'd rather know that everything we're doing is everything we want to be doing. And with, I think like something with the, the drive-through management and the drive-through label, uh, label situation is, is very clear, right? Especially as those bands, some of them were selling hundreds of thousands of records. Um, I hope Knuckle Puck sells hundreds of thousands of records. Um, but the way we operate, how bad timing and how Knuckle Puck works too is, is maybe a little different than people think. Knuckle Puck owns uh, 100% of the digital rights for the, for the release and bad timing strictly is doing the physical. And that's a way for the band's product vinyl to get out there as best they can, but still for the uh, further label to do a good job on vinyl. We have never, or uh, Thomas and I also, I mean, this isn't really relevant to anyone, but Thomas and I have never taken a dime from the label uh, in terms of back into our pocket. If anything, we've only invested a copious amount of money into it. So I, I don't know that I have a great answer besides um, like knuckle puck will not be on bad timing records forever for the day we started working with them with the label to the day we stop working with them for the label. Like what's been most important is about having a cohesive, strong and controlled environment for all of their vinyl releases. And I think, 
I don't think anyone could have done a better job than we did for their for their vinyl releases. You know, we we sold out the first split we did with them in a day. We sold out the first uh, thousand pressing of them we did in a day. We sold out of five hundred flexies in a day. Like I think I think we were the right label to work with the band, um, whether me managing them or not. And it, it's clearly a conflict of interest. I full stop. But at the same time, I think this has only worked to the benefit. Every, everyone has been made better off for it. Financially speaking, I guess I have made better off for it in terms of my management commissions because uh, the vinyl did really well. And I'm, I'm glad it did because that makes the band only better off financially uh, speaking as well. In terms of label money, I don't, Thomas and I have zero plans to ever take a dollar from the label at this point. So like, I don't really know there. <laughs> But I, I don't know if anything I said made sense. It did. Maybe, and I so know. I think that, you know, like the interesting thing comes up of it's like, you know, so now so many bands, their management basically runs their label. Like you take a band like Metric where their manager is basically their label manager too. Actually, can I say one more thing? I think where, where it would become a serious conflict of interest is if uh, after this EP record label X hit us up and they offered us a phenomenal deal and they had a lot of other great bands that made perfect sense for us to be with and everything looked really healthy and I said, no, you guys, you really can't leave Bad Timing Records. This would be a major mistake for you. It's going to ruin your career if you sign with this perfect record label. Stay with mine. Yeah. And I think if we're talking about a conflict of interest, that's where it would be ugly, right? And and that would never or, or will never be my intention. My intention is to only help the band grow um, first and foremost for the band's sake. And um, part of part of us working together with the band on bad timing has been because I want them to grow. And I think this was the best way to get them a solid footing musically sales speaking, like in terms of the amount of music we can sell, but I don't want them to be stifled by the label and for us to like refuse to let them work with anyone else. That's I think um, what what would be the yes. conflict of interest. Um, I think the other thing though is that like there's a lot of times now that now that we can do DIY things, it's like yes, your manager, you're kind of almost doing this as if it's like you managing the release, like the same way like with Man Overboard, I would. You know, we would do some stuff on Lost Tape Collective and we'd put out some stuff ourselves and it wasn't a conflict to do it because it's just like, all right, this is the set agreement. This is what we're doing. You're getting a very beneficial contract of this. I don't think anybody would ever say that this isn't fair. And it was the same thing. So I'd have to deal with the record budgets for Man Overboard and I'd be producing a record and I'd have to figure out my pay. And usually what basically happened was there wasn't much of a conflict of interest and the same thing happened with transit is that it was just the label said, we have this much money to do to do a record with. And that was what I made it with despite being way below my normal rate. So as the producer, I definitely lost out as the manager. Um, you know, I made the best decision to get a record done for that. But there even became a thing of that, of that like, you know, when, in my last days of managing transit, we were shopping around to producers uh, to do Listen and Forgive. And then the uh, same thing with Man Overboard, the self-titled record, as I helped them uh, choose the co-producer for that record. You know, it was that thing. I never sat there going, I should be the only one producing this. We, it was very much, they said, we'd like to look at working with somebody new for the next record. I said, sure. And if I can help, I'll help. And that'll be that. But I think that that is the thing is, is that 
this has to be a, a real thing. And we have to acknowledge that these things can be seen as conflict of interest and you have to just behave ethically and out in the open with it. Yeah, as, as management, it's sort of your job. You can have disagreements with the band. You can steer the band. The band can end up going with your idea. But at the end of the day, it's kind of your job to best serve out the band's creative and business wishes with the best possible end goal. And if Knucklepuck said four months ago, hey, um, we're not going to do this with bad timing. Uh, we're going to do it with whomever, and this is why. And and it was totally reasonable. Like, what am I to say? I would be bummed because we. I think bad timing maybe would have done a better job, but it, it doesn't serve anyone's ultimate benefit by by like just cutting off like just cutting off the band in that way like it's it's not helpful to anyone um and and knowing knowing that line is is really important luckily i i've never actually come to a point with knuckle puck where there has been some issue with like with some issue with that because i hope that on my own i'm smart enough to realize what's what um in terms of the website well, self-aware self-aware let's not call it smart Self-awareness. Yeah, self-awareness. Um, in terms of the website, it, it's a little harder and is a little more gray than, than black and white. And the website is going to be changing a lot very soon to better to better match that. Um, I want the website to be more of what I am rather than what, what it's been for the last five years based off of what I was when I was 16. Um, and, that, and that's hard to change too because there's so much... So much uh, solid ground there already, but at the at the same time, I, I don't think it's I don't love like not posting something or posting something because of this or that. I just want to post something because I want to post about it. Um, and while I think that guy's comment on absolute punk is is pretty dumb, there are, there are still valid sub points not riddled in horrible sarcasm and, and idiocracy. Yeah, and I, the other thing I'll say that uh, this got me thinking about is um, as somebody who's kind of been, I don't want to say jack of all trades, but I've had my hand in a lot of different things. I've seen a lot of times that people, and I don't want to dismiss it as like the haters, like I get shit for doing a million different things instead of just focusing on one thing. And I think people get really mad about power because power is not always good for people. Like if you think of it this way, Property of Zach would be obsoleted if you started ignoring everything you saw as out of bounds. It didn't keep it real sometimes and leak news. Like, you know, let's say all of a sudden um, I start managing Roddy Radke. You feel bad for me when he does something dumb and stop posting about all the dumb things he does because you're like, well, Jesse's my friend. We're getting really hypothetical here. People would stop going to you because they were going to go to the site that reports real news. People do want that. And it's the same thing for me of that, like, you know, if I, as a music business writer, um, started ignoring when good companies do things that only wrote about when my friends' companies did things, I would get ignored. I think that's the thing is, too, is that there's a little bit of a free market here at work of that. If your power goes unchecked, we live in an internet that will punish you for that. And that's how, like, also, that's okay. Like, to get feedback, to get, I think a lot of, uh, it, it can be frustrating sometimes. Sometimes uh, people will, pro uh, will reply to something I post on the site, whether it's an op-ed or just, just an opinion, and be like, Hey, like you're wrong, and we'll explain the reason very sternly, and I'll just go and I'll just ask them why, 
Like, why do you think that? And often their reply will be, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. This was just what I thought. And my reply to that will be like, hey, well, you don't need to like make yourself sound overpowered. It's okay to have a conversation. I'd rather learn or understand better why you think this because maybe everyone else will think this or maybe someone else will think this too. Like getting checked is good. Having checks in place is really good, I think. And it's important. (laughs) You know, like the... With this comment in particular, it didn't really make me do any checks because I thought it was pretty ludicrous, and I still do. But at the same that time, like, ludicrous. It was totally malicious. Yeah, it this, was this malicious. person does not like you, and they want other people to feel the way they feel. Totally, totally. And and so, you know, my, my thought on that is if you disagree with someone, like, it's okay. Everyone, you know, I think, oddly enough, with the internet, with you allowing, like, with anyone allowing to be so malicious, like, Everyone is either so malicious or they don't say anything. Like there's like it's either or. And you know, it's okay to be in the middle and ask someone why they're doing this or why they think this and why you think otherwise. Like and if that person that you question is not able to have a discussion with you, well that's kinda on them. But me, I I would rather always have the discussion because that's the only way to learn. In my and that's why we did this segment. Yes. You wanna you wanna start a new Twitter? A new Twitter? A new Twitter social oh. network. No, I love Twitter too much to start it, but apparently someone does um, since we've been being asked to talk about Ello. Ello. <laughs> um, not to be confused with the band Allo Darlin, which to me is for some reason that name. What is that? Uh, I've been seeing my Twitter feed talk about the band and that band name just makes me want to murder everyone. Just makes me want to hit nuke on the earth. Anyway. I don't know what it is. So... Uh, you know, you've probably seen people talking about wanting invites to LO. It's a new social network that claims it's going to keep it real and not put up ads and be like Facebook and Twitter has become. Everybody who signed up seems Did to... Did you get an invite? Yeah, I, I, I'm signed up. Okay, I am too. Just like everybody else, I'm fully not impressed. I think they rolled this idea out way too early in its existence. But that's not to say that there's not a huge demand for a social network that isn't as horrible as Facebook's become. I think Facebook has totally crossed the line, especially with what they did to all the brands with making brands have to pay to reach people who clicked like on it and the people that built their social network, they've basically silenced. We're going to see somebody, and somebody's going to do this right, is that somebody's probably going to, one, make it open source and make it very open and interesting, and you're basically going to have a Firefox-Chrome of social networks at some point. And people are going to leave Facebook because Facebook has now gotten too manipulative and gotten too about what's good for them, not what's good for the community, and they're not finding right balance. They've tipped that scale just so horribly. Yeah, I um, uh, there's an article in the show notes um, on one of my favorite websites, Stratechery, called LO and Consumer-Friendly Business Models. And Ben Thompson, the author of the blog, kind of just very easily explains why LO will fail and it will fail terribly. Um, and that's even if, even if it makes it out of like the first month in terms of interest, like I poked around for it in one day and I haven't come back, uh, because it just wasn't enticing to me beyond, beyond like even just it not feeling so great to use beyond there potentially being excitement over use a new social network. There's already major, like just issues. Uh, so many people already have their names stolen from like that they use on Twitter because people want to jack those names and do whatever with them. You know, that wasn't an issue we saw on Twitter originally because 
Twitter started out very slow and, and built up ground. But beyond beyond something like that, um, they, there's just not going to be a proper business model because they don't want advertising. And the way they plan on uh, potentially getting people to pay for the to pay for the service is by holding out its best features until you pay for it. Well, that's not going to be a great way to sign up people. Um, so read this article if you don't mind reading about tech and business a little bit. But beyond that, I, I do, Jesse, think you're right. I think something should or will be or can be coming for a social network that that is a little friendlier to things that we're excited about, like music and not having to pay Facebook to present more than 10% of your posts to your fans. Um at the same time, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. I, I don't, don't either. I don't really see an end in sight. Like I, I think I don't think Facebook will really ever go away. Actually, I, th- mm. I think it has hit a critical mass. I, don't, I, don't, agree. I don't agree with you. And I think Facebook, Facebook is becoming a business, not just a product. And that, like, face, like, there's WhatsApp. There's there's uh, the shit. The Oculus uh, Rift and Instagram and uh, the yeah, Oculus Rift, right? Right, there, there, are, there are now legs. There are now separate legs to Facebook as a business, and whether Facebook, the platform that you go on to, Facebook.com, dwindles in ten years or not, okay. But at the same time, like Facebook as a company, I don't see going away tomorrow, and and I just don't see a new social network getting large tomorrow, even if some of us may want to. And I don't, I don't think there's a real perfect use case to how one could even exist without advertising, because it probably can't. And that, that seems to be the route, the route like Ella wants to take is like, we're not gross and we, we're not going to advertise, but we have no real great reason for you to sign up because we're going to make you charge money. And who's going to pay money for a social network yeah. that may go away? Like it's just, it's just not, it seems nice and friendly, but it's just not. Great. Well, this was an imperfect, um, first birth, you know, the first child board is not always the smartest. And yeah, but like there is a severe, severe demand. And like, it's the same thing I think about like with Twitter, with Facebook is like, we all know that everybody who's smart and cool uses Twitter more than they use Facebook. And your dumbass friend who needs to post about what they ate for lunch every 10 seconds uses Facebook more. And I'm not saying everybody who uses Facebook's dumb. It's pretty undeniable that most of the more gifted, intelligent people use uh, Twitter more than Facebook. I think it's just that thing of like Facebook is destroying itself and cannibalizing it with doing bad ideas all the time because they've gotten too big for it. And there's just that Achilles heel keeps getting bigger and bigger. and It's waiting for somebody to just cut it and let them fall on top of themselves. And Facebook's income is big enough that when the social network Facebook falls, that it could also take WhatsApp and Oculus Rift down with it if Oculus hasn't come up as big as it's going to eventually be. I do believe Oculus is going to be huge. Oddly enough, I think Twitter is actually in a much worse place than Facebook. Um, If we're just going to talk about social networks for a minute. Sure. Uh, I think if anything, that's going to... I see Twitter going away way sooner than I do um, Facebook. Um, Solely because, like, it's not hard to find out that uh, Twitter's like user base is a fraction of Facebook's, and only a fraction of Twitter's user base uses Twitter every day, and only a fraction of that user base actually tweets versus just reads tweets or follows people. And 
there, there's like a there's a major lack of cohesiveness with Twitter, and their Twitter is the worst at recognizing what Twitter should be used for. The company Twitter does not understand the product Twitter, and this is really nerdy. For, so for just one second, there are things called APIs, and APIs are how. A company like Twitter, uh, there there are different Twitter clients. There's you. Most people listening to this probably use the Twitter app, but there are different clients called Tweetbot and Twitterific, and so many for Android and and so on. And Twitter as a company uh, grew originally because people could could use the product how they wanted to through these custom apps that were often better than Twitter's product itself. And Twitter's cutting off access to those uh, clients and. Those will ultimately piss off people like me, but I'm not important to Twitter because I don't see their ads and I don't click their ads. And all Twitter really wants to be is an ad network as well now, like Facebook. But Facebook actually has a much better way of doing it because they're not just a, they don't need to put all their tweets, sorry, Facebook doesn't need to put all its advertisements in its timeline. Like there's copious other areas of Facebook where they can advertise. But Twitter's way of uh, unfortunately showing ads needs to be in your timeline because that's all Twitter is. And by doing that, Twitter's ultimately ruining its true one beautiful experience. And I still think there's a lot more you can do perfectly happy on Facebook without that. Like, And so to me, I think Twitter, because they're not growing rapidly uh, because not everyone... Twitter's hard to understand for people, a lot of people. And... I just don't. I think Twitter could be disrupted fairly easily if something like Twitter came along, came along with a friendlier advertising model. Whether whatever that is, I don't know. But I just think Twitter's actually in a lot of trouble. Um, I think I think Tumblr really is kind of the only one that's a little impervious right now because Tumblr is not doing anything inherently wrong. They're now owned by a company, and we'll see how eventually more advertisements come into play with that. But like in terms of Twitter and sorry, in terms of like Tumblr and Instagram, like those two companies, whether, and they are now owned by other giant companies, like those two seem to be the only ones not in trouble because they're not fucking up left and right. In my opinion, I actually, I think too many tech writers are concerned with that. Twitter needs to win the race and become the biggest thing and become better for more people. Twitter has everybody it needs to be on there. It doesn't matter that tons of people don't use it. It's that when ISIS wants to show it's chopping off people's heads, it goes to Twitter to do it. When a politician needs to say something, a musician needs to say something, somebody needs to say something important right now, and they're not going to get an interview with Maria Shriver, they can go to Twitter and say it like, James Risen of the New York Times, uh, who's been this silenced journalist, when he needs to talk, he's going to Twitter. And, like, this is what people do and where people know they can talk to the smart people who will amplify their message to the rest of the world. It's where people can fire off something and say it fast, and I don't think that that's changing anytime soon. But that's me. Yeah, Twitter Twitter is definitely my most beloved social network. I I just think there are problems. There are there are there are problems, but I don't think that they're as big as the uh, tech pundit class likes to portray them as because everybody wants to pretend that you need to be in this competition to be actually to relate it to music. I think a lot of bands have the problem of that they think they should be the biggest band on earth and they keep trying to do something that's going to make them the biggest band on earth when you should just be real psyched that your genre loves you and that you have 
let's say, 100,000 people who really love you. And I think too many people then say, I have to be bigger than Katy Perry, and they're never going to be bigger than Katy Perry. And I think that that's the same thing right, the right. P- tech pundit class does with Twitter is they're ma- they say that Twitter's doing things wrong because they're not bigger. And I think Twitter should just focus on how they make those of us who use it every day happier. And one of the ways they could do that is by not putting tweets we don't follow into our timeline. <laughs> I agree. Use yep, tweet Same. That's what anyway, I do. Anyway, to go back to Knucklepuck, because all I want is your money and I have conflicts of interest, um, one of us found an interesting link a while ago now that we were waiting to hold until this topic that 26% of all potential album sales happen before the release date, which means pre-orders. Um, pre-orders. We, uh, we like Knucklepuck today, we just announced our, our new release and we announced that we're going to be launching pre-orders on Wednesday, the day after this podcast launches. Jesse, how important were, were pre-orders like fully on your mind when when Man Overboard and Transit were first taking off, or were they less of yeah, a thing? Yeah, they were less of a thing, because those bands just didn't have big fan bases yet. It, what, you know, the scene wasn't quite there. Yes, pre-orders mattered, and we thought about the pre-order, but um, we have to also remember both of those records leaked well in advance that I was part of the major rollout of, and uh, we had to put them out and screw up our pre-orders pretty badly. So that was not so much my thing. Um, I definitely think a lot about pre-order strategy, but... Uh, this is not my bag, so you should take this. I think pre-orders for from how I've how I have seen them or how how I've managed them over the past year have become so incredibly interesting and important. Um, as a music fan, well, real quick, Jesse, as a music fan, do you usually pre-order an album, or at what point at what point do you pre-order an album? I don't pre-order records, but I pre-ordered Lita Dunham's new book, and boy, was I happy when that was in my mailbox that day. Interesting. Okay. So so for me, I, I do pre-order albums. Uh, as, as a music fan, I do pre-order albums. I, um, if it's for a band I love, let's, let's just say, uh, let's just say brand new. If it's for a brand, uh, they're not a good example. Let's say Tang Back Sunday. Um, Tang Back Sunday released an album earlier this year called Happiness Is. I am, uh, Tang Back Sunday is one of my favorite bands of all time. I don't love the album they put out a few years ago, and Happiness Is is also not my favorite Taking Back Sunday album, but because they're one of my favorite bands of all time, I still feel the need to support them, and I, bought, I pre-ordered the record right away. That's like on, the, that's on the, the high end of the scale for me, pre-ordering an album. But if there's a band like, just a smaller band on a label like Run For Cover or, or Tiny Engine, something like that, I may wait a little while. I may see if I like any of the songs, but it's usually pretty clear to me if I like a band and then I'm going to pre-order their album. Um, and so, and so I pre-order a lot of records. I, I rarely, I would say buy records after they come out because it's rare. The, the, the ratio of me knowing I like a band to not knowing and then finding them is, is pretty skewed. Um, but in, in terms of the, this percentage of that stat that's in the, in the show notes of all of 25, 26% of potential album sales happen before the release date, I think that's incredibly true. Um, and I think it lines up pretty well with how we've handled a lot of bad timing pre-orders over the past year. And, and Knuckle Puck is actually the best example where we started testing this method and did the same thing with acceptance, the acceptance LP2 actually. And that's how a lot of people sort of gave kudos to the record, to the record label was we announced a release on uh, Monday and we say, 
on Wednesday at noon, this is going to go up. Buy it or you're going to miss out. And where where I think this comes most into play is for vinyl um, because it's very beneficial to do cool vinyl variants and limited and bundles so you can get people to not necessarily impulse buy, but just just be excited and want to get your music. And to us, what we did today with the Knuckle Puck release is we have four different product bundles, uh, T-shirts, music, crewnecks, and uh, fanny packs? No, an ultimate bundle. We do have fanny packs. Please buy a fanny pack. And uh, so we announced the release today, and we said uh, it's going on sale at 2 o'clock Eastern Wednesday. And we showed all the available options for the EP to our potential fan base and customer base. And now we are letting them know, like, oh, God, if I want this variant, I need to go on the website right o'clock at 2 o'clock and buy it. And that gives us a very good way of telling everyone where they need to be, when they need to go, and why they should buy it. And let's say something sells out, it's only going to create more excitement. To me, what a pre-order is, is just building the most excitement. And of course, that's kind of what every rollout is for an album. But to me, it's it's a little different. It's And not in a gross way, but it's just kind of like fans are literally being like, please take my money. And, and that's something you don't get all the time. You only get that once every few years when you release new music, besides a tour. And... I, I really like the pre-order process a lot. I've I've gotten re- Thomas and I have gotten like really into mapping out how it works and how it's affected our label. So maybe there's not a whole ton to say, but I, I think it's pretty interesting. And twenty six percent is a is a pretty obviously substantial number when you think of just how long a band might potentially tour on a release. I, I, I do have stuff to say about this. So one, if you're a band with no with very few fans, let's say you have you're a band who's never sold. Let's call it 250 records. You've never sold 250 on your band camp or at shows. I actually don't think doing pre-orders is smart. I think when you're young and you're trying to do this, you want to save all your momentum for when people can hear a full record. So let's say you have these 150 fans that are excited and they're going to tweet, Facebook share, or tell their friends that you put out something new and that their friend might like it. If you're doing a pre-order... They're probably not going to put you at the top of their list if they even just like the one song you put up for streaming compared to if they could just hear your full record. So if you're going to be doing a barrage of press, put out some YouTube videos that you've made of some songs, do it after the record's available to do it because people haven't learned to bite into you yet and do it. And I think with new groups doing pre-orders, it's a, a loss of opportunity because people don't get excited enough to buy a full-length record off of one song unless they really love that one song. But if you do all your promotion, you save those YouTube videos that your fans are going to pass around for when they can hear the full EP or they can hear the full record and then they hear one song and they go, great, there's another one to listen to. And they listen to that and they love that and they hear this, then they're going to get excited. They're going to tell their friends. They're going to maybe go buy your vinyl. They're going to go do other things get excited, but they're not going to get that excited off of just the one song if it's just, like, good compared to, you know, they might think the song you didn't release as the single is amazing, and I think there's much more potential when you're a smaller band to get that to happen. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on the band size. I think it I think it definitely depends. Like, if you're, if you're a band with a few hundred Facebook likes and you're going to be putting out something all on your own and you don't have help, like, you shouldn't. You shouldn't wait and dick around. If someone's like excited, like you should, you should let them get what they want. Um, 
up to a certain point though, whether it's a band knuckle puck size or something a little smaller, like there's there's clear advantages. Yes. So one last thing I wanted to talk about very quickly. A billboard, a lot of billboard in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, billboard reported that One Direction have a financial stake in Five Seconds of Summer. A lot of people were very outraged. We talk about One Direction in Five Seconds of Summer a lot on this podcast. We sure do. <laughs> and I Urban mean, Outfitters, what are oof, we becoming? You just look so good in your American Apparel underwear, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Wore it, wore it to the, the Blood Brothers <laughs> oh, yes. show last night. That was you. Wait. No, I, I, the only American <laughs> apparel I owned is uh, the winter gloves. I really like those. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good to know. That's so the podcast gifts, people. It's going to be Christmas for Zach and I said, you got to give back. You know, we haven't been putting ads on lately. <laughs> yeah, please. Please buy me underwear from American Apparel. Um, <laughs> so, so the report basically... There, there are three. There are three controllers in the financial area of Five Seconds of Summer. The three are the individual band members of Five Seconds of Summer, One Direction, and then Five Seconds of Summer's uh, management, who is also One Direction's management. Jesse, were you surprised by that? No, because you know what I always think about is Usher did this with the Beep. Usher got a percentage of everything off the really? Beep, and I this kind that. of has been going on. I mean, like, and you think of it too is like, you know. Pete Wentz with Decade Dance was kind of like, hey, everybody, I'm pretty famous. This is what you should be listening to. And he put out all these groups and all those ones he A&R'd, he got a nice uh, percentage off of. Um, I believe Panic at the Disco was one that was like, everybody kind of said this. And But the Usher Beeb thing is, I think, the most popular ones that Usher discovered the Beeb and, you know, he's who we have to thank for that. Yeah. The Beeb. Um, yeah, that that was my comparison too with with Fallout Boy and Panic and the Disco. I, I interestingly enough, I think where this is gonna potentially hurt Five Seconds this summer is that I do still think they have a massive opportunity to like take All Time Low out on tour with them, and then all of All Time Low's fan base suddenly loves Five Seconds of Summer, and then there are a lot of people in our overarching scene that suddenly love Five Seconds Summer. Where I think that could like hurt them is suddenly that. 15 year old being like you like five seconds uh one direction owns you and that like i'm kind of interesting to see how that plays out because i do think this it's not like a good i'm sure they would rather have that not have come out right like Mm -hmm. it looks a little weird because it looks like they're just a corporation with stockholders and in some sense that is what they are um well, no, what they are is a put-together boy band, which they were trying to deny that they were. Like Their whole existence uh, pretends that they're not this put-together charade of boy band crap. And now we know even more so, as if we couldn't see through this charade before, that it's a charade. The emperor has no clothes. <laughs> I just, I know, I, I think, like, I was, I was kind of surprised by how many people were surprised. Um, but it's a really sweet deal for One Direction. God, it's a great idea. Like, I don't know. Do you think this is something that we could see like more from people in our genre? Well, I think you see it in some ways uh, as well as that cool guy from the band starts quote unquote producing and quote unquote songwriting for a band. That's them kind of getting a piece of that band. And while they're doing a little bit more for it, yeah. But let me say this. I can remember... Years ago, there was this very, very desperate Jersey band of kids who worked on their haircuts more than they worked on their songs, um, who were literally going up to bigger bands and offering them a percentage if they would endorse them and take them out on tour. Wow. 
to just give them their big break because these kids were so desperate to be famous and be sought after by girls who did duck face in their MySpace photos. <laughs> sure, there's a lot of potential for this because there's a lot of people who will do just about anything to be famous. So I'm sure we could see this. I just don't know that it always is the case that then you're going to be able to uh, have enough money to fund John Feldman giving you songs too. Ooh, yeah. I just... Yeah, I, I'm going there. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> well, do you have recommendations for this week? I do. I saw the Descendants movie filmage oh, you did. on Monday. Was this the first time? And that was the first time I saw it, and uh, it was really, really good. And if you like pop punk, whether you know who Descendants are, you got to watch this because this is basically like why pop punk exists, the movie, and it was super, super well I, done yeah. and inspiring. I thought it was so incredible. I saw it. Uh, sometime in junior year last year, uh, they they were doing like a film, uh, screening in Philly, and I obviously know a ton about Descendants, but I don't listen to them. Um, and regardless of that, like Jesse said, like you should just really see this movie if you love punk at all, whether it's like pop punk or punk rock, whatever. Like just see it; it, it an incredible film. Like, yeah, I cried at one point. <laughs> Same here. I mean, uh, we'll get into it on a future episode why uh, it was particularly touching to me. Maybe even next episode. Yeah. But uh, what do you call it? Uh, so that I saw Gone Girl yesterday. Oh. That's the best movie in years. It's just, whew, it's amazing. Everybody killed it in every role. And I hate Ben Affleck, especially after his little controversy this week. I hate him even more because he said some really stupid things. But uh it was just the best movie I've seen in years. It's unbelievable on every front. Awesome. Yeah, I want to see that. Grace did not want to see that this weekend because she wants to read the book first. And I'm like, I'm not going to read the book. I'm not. I, I, I don't think somebody should read the book first either. You know what's funny is I sat sandwiched between two pairs of girls who saw the book first and they were much less impressed than me and my friend who didn't. And that, I, I think a great movie is better than uh, a great book. That's generally anytime. why I don't read. That's what I tell everyone. Just... <laughs> You know, how often do you say you see people say the movie was better? So I will just say the movie instead and let that enjoyment happen because most of us, our ignorance is our bliss in that department. Mm. Anything else? No, that's it for you. No, that, 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 well, I mean, I saw the Blood Brothers reunion last night and that was amazing too, but not many people are going to get to go see that now because I think they're almost done doing that. Yeah, uh, talking about pre-orders, uh, if you have not checked out any of the songs off of Piano Becomes the Teeth, Piano Has Become the Teeth's new album, Keep You, you should really check that out. Uh, it's a large majority of what I've been playing for the last few weeks. It's just a really incredible record. Um, and then because of conflicts of interest, uh, Knuckle Puck EP, it was announced. Everyone who's talked on this podcast has worked on it, and it's really cool, so go check that out. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone for listening to Off The Record this week. Head to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes, to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter, at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z Zarillo, and our podcast is at Off The Record FM. We'll be back next week.